In January, we began a journey as a church family chronologically through the stories of the Bible. We are nearly done. Next week, we will conclude the story. When we come to today's story and we talk about the Apostle Paul's final days, you're also hearing the words of a man who knew he was near the end. He wrote to Timothy from prison, and he knew that a man who had suffered greatly for Christ would not escape this particular trial and tribulation. In fact, using a very Hebrew idiom, he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. My life is as fragile as a drink that can be poured out on the ground, poured out on an altar as a sacrifice to God. If Paul were here this morning instead of me, first of all, you would be greatly blessed. That would be a huge win for all of us. But if he were standing before you, there's, there's a decent chance he might need help up these four steps. You would find his physical presence pitiable. Your heart would be broken and moved by what you would see in him. I know that because of how he described his own life in a different part of the Bible in 2 Corinthians. Paul was beaten continuously because he had the audacity to tell people about Jesus. He suffered every kind of rejection a person could. On one occasion, in fact, he was ceremonially stoned. In other words, they tried to religiously kill him by stoning him. And what probably happened that afternoon is that the disciples who rescued him unpiled rocks off of Paul and helped him battered and very likely unconscious back into the city to give him medical aid so that he would survive. In another one of his letters, he says, look, I'm signing this in my own hand. Look how large my writing is. It's hard to know exactly what he meant, but it's very likely that Paul suffered greatly from his eyesight. He may have been partially blind. You would have seen all over his body, particularly his hands, defensive wounds and the scars and the scar tissue and all the physical problems that come with a life characterized by every kind of suffering, including multiple shipwrecks. I mean, what are the chances? Most of us have the mis never have the misfortune of being shipwrecked a single time. For Paul, it happened more than once. He was in constant danger, and basically everyone had turned against him. When he writes the letter that we're looking at this morning, he is telling one of his very few trusted associates, a young man named Timothy, who was a Gentile convert to Judaism, to hurry and come see him because he said, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course that God had for me, I've been faithful to the end. And right at the end of the letter, he says, do your best to come to me before winter. And Paul's not a melodramatic man, but what that almost certainly means is if you don't come soon, if you don't come before winter, you may not be able to see me at all because someday they're going to knock on this cell door and take me out to kill me. That's exactly what happened. And as you read the two letters that Paul wrote, Timothy, known to us as Paul's first and second letter, but particularly the second one, you can see a very reasonable human concern that the kind of suffering that had enveloped Paul and that Timothy himself had tasted for years in his own ministry was now going to be directed in its full force against Timothy standing alone, and he was concerned that Timothy was going to let go. 
You see, Paul had so few trusted co-workers, and he loved Timothy so much, calling him his own son, that he continually sent him into the toughest assignments. He had left him in difficult places to confront false teachers and false teaching who would do nothing, who, who would do anything rather and stop at nothing to quiet Jesus' messengers down. And that's been Paul's experience, and Timothy knows it full well. And Paul says, for instance, of Timothy, I remember your tears. He says things like this, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and self-control. He reminds him to fan into a flame the gift of ministry that Timothy has been called into. He tells him to hold fast to the gospel and entrust it to other people who will be able to teach still others. In other words, this is Paul's final writing saying, Timothy, hang on. In the link of chains that extend the message of Jesus from his life into the next generation, you're next. I will soon be killed. Hang on. I've read First and Second Timothy with great enjoyment probably from the time I was 17 because I understood back then through a youth camp that Timothy was written to a young Christian in difficult circumstances. And I was interested even back then in learning how I could hold on to my faith because even in my late teens and 20s, I realized that people were falling away from Jesus. People were getting discouraged just as Jesus said they would and loving the things of the world more. Had their faith choked by persecution, had their faith choked by fear, by family rejection, by economic pressure, by simple, ordinary, daily distractions, all kinds of things trying to impede the genuine personal relationship that believers have with Jesus. And I think that's why Paul's urgency is in 2 Timothy is for Timothy to hang on. And today I'd like to bring to you one specific thing that Paul reminds Timothy of that can help you hang on. It's perhaps on this habit, on this knowledge and walking into it that it depends most of all to continually stay in touch with the Lord. You can read with me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And just for a little context so you can see the, how personal and real and painful Paul's circumstances are, let's begin reading in verse 10. He says to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, if you don't have a Bible of your own this morning, look around. There's probably one in the, in the chair beneath you or near you. And I'd love for you to join me there. 2 Timothy, at the end of the Bible, chapter 3, verse 10. Paul writes to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. This next verse probably sent a chill up Timothy's spine. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's not very cheerful, is it? Timothy, if you try to hold fast to Jesus, it's going to cost you. And the false teachers who are around you deceive others, and they're deceived themselves, and they're going to go from bad to worse. It's not going to get better in your lifetime. 
One reason I love the Bible is that it always speaks the truth about life. It is never like a Hallmark card that glosses over the tough stuff. It speaks with accuracy and relevance about life as it really is. So, Paul says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul's pulling out all the stops. In these letters, he pulls the mom and grandma card. He says, Timothy, you learn the faith from your grandmother and your mother. All your life from childhood, they have placed God's writings before you, and those writings have this value. They can make you wise to be saved, not in and of themselves, but by teaching you and leading you to put your faith in Jesus. It is Jesus who saves, not the Scriptures. The value of the Scriptures is they testify and lead us to Jesus. Here's the passage I want to study with you this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is huge. And for emphasis, I'd like us to read it together. We have a lot of Bible translations probably represented here this morning, but let's read this passage together. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Let's begin with the most interesting and novel concept in everything that Paul wrote in these two little verses. He's referring to Scripture, which you have the privilege of having in front of you. The Hebrew Scriptures grew from the Hebrew Scriptures into the Old and New Testament. And I don't have time to explain all of that to you, but God supernaturally worked in the lives of ordinary people, carrying them along with His voice, with His authority to write His words down so that we would know who He is. That's how loving God is. That's how committed He is to be known. He put it in writing. He didn't leave it to subjective personal impressions. He put it in writing so that he could be certainly and surely known. As much as one person can know another, you can know God. And that Scripture, Paul says, is a very interesting phrase. It is, what's it say? Breathed out by God. Some of your translations will say inspired. But more literal translations have said breathed out by God because that's literally what the word means. It's a very novel word. You can't find it in Greek literature until this moment. We can't know for sure because reading ancient documents is a dicey business because there's not as much available as we would like, but it's entirely possible that Paul himself coined this word to describe what God was telling him God did to make the Scriptures came to be. The Scripture is breathed out by God. It is God's breath. And to understand that, you really need to look back into the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament that Paul would know so well. 
Not all of you will know the answer to this question, and that's okay. If you're just getting acquainted with the Bible, congratulations. Take the next step. It's great. But if you happen to know, do you recall the first time in Scripture that the breath of God is mentioned? In Genesis. In what context? What was happening in Genesis that the breath of God is mentioned for the first time in what God told us? God is giving life to Adam. If you read Genesis chapter 1, how did God create the universe? He spoke. What was the first thing God spoke into existence? God said, let there be light. There is no life without light, so God created light first. And if you have just a little bit of imagination, you can imagine yourself sitting there watching the universe appear, exist for the first time. Light and everything else that was made was simply spoken into existence by God. But when God made man, the process slows down. The first human being, Adam, was not spoken into existence. How was he made according to the detailed account we have in Genesis chapter 2? He was crafted. He was shaped from the dust of the earth. But even then, even as God's own direct handiwork, Adam did not live. What gave him life? God breathed into his, if you remember the detail, God breathed into his nostrils. Man, that's a lot of detail. Let me give you a Bible reading tip. Hebrew storytelling is lean and fast and doesn't have many details. For instance, we have no real idea what Jesus looked like. We don't know what Paul looked like. We can only infer some very simple things from their own physical descriptions. Hebrew storytelling is not interested in the kind of detail that an American mystery novelist might give us. It's driven by action. It has a specific point. And Hebrew storytelling, because it's so lean and quick and fast, here's a good Bible reading tip. When the Bible in its story slows down, that's the narrator telling you, hey, pay attention to this. It's like movie making. When a director goes from normal speed to slow motion, he really wants to make sure that you're not elbow deep in your popcorn and you really notice what's happening next. Okay? So, if our hero in the movie suddenly slows down as everything blows up around him and he doesn't look because cool guys don't look at explosions, okay, but he <laughs> cross draws and you see his hand gripping a gun that you didn't know was there. <laughs> and it slowly comes out of his waistband, and he lets you look down his arm and down the barrel of the gun. And then the camera angle changes, and you see his right index finger slowly tightening on the trigger. The tension is building. You're really noticing this. I mean, my goodness, he's going to shoot. And then finally the gun bucks and Fire explodes out of it, and smoke goes everywhere. And if it's a John Woo movie, you even get to see the bullet spinning out of the barrel and slowly. And this might take three minutes for something that in real life happens like that. When Hebrew storytelling slows down, it really wants you to notice. That's a big clue to the point. And my point is this. When God made man, he told us he slowed down. 
It was not enough for him to speak man into existence. He fashioned him personally, but even then, Adam was not alive. He became a living being, we're told, when God breathed into his nostrils. First mention of the breath of God in the entire Scriptures. Now, think through the image. It's an image because God is spirit. Think through the image. To breathe, face to, to breathe on somebody, you have to be in what position with them? Face to face. That's the magnitude, that's the point in Paul's explanation of what Scripture is. All Scripture, everything that God said, everything that God, the Holy Spirit, used to move men along thinking His thoughts through their personalities and through their experiences, but writing absolutely and without fail God's own words and God's own self-disclosure. This is what God wants us to know about Him. All of that, Paul says, is the very breath of God. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures well. He wants to, in, for Timothy to remember that first moment of creation, I'm convinced, so that you will know when you open your ordinary paper copy of the Bible, you're doing much more than opening an ordinary book. The book itself is ordinary. The binding may be cheap. The printing may be poor. But God Himself has breathed out in writing what He wants people to know. And that is the very breath of God. He invites you to be face to face with Him and hear from Him. And Paul says that experience, day after day, sometimes great, sometimes ordinary, sometimes apparently meaningless because you don't understand what it says or you're distracted and troubled and you can't hardly pay attention and your blasted friends won't stop texting you and your office won't stop pinging you with emails and all of those things are happening around you. But in that moment, you have before you the privilege of being face-to-face -face with the creator of the universe. And Paul says all of that is profitable. That's profitable to you. And of everything in these two verses, I think that's the part that people believe the least. I'm going to be as honest with you as I can. Too many Christians don't read the Bible and don't struggle through the dry times and don't keep reading after the face and the voice of God because they don't see the prophet in it. It is a box to check. It is a good habit to keep. It's some religious duty that somehow they understood they should be part of, but they don't genuinely see prophet in it. And it is. It is very profitable, and the next words explain why. Those next few words, teaching, reproof, correction, and training, were carefully chosen by Paul under the breath of God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that you would know how much profit awaits you when you open your Bible. The first word, teaching, basically means it's the whole curriculum. It's everything God needs you to know. God didn't put everything He knows in Scripture, but everything you need to know for the godly, good, righteous, profitable, beautiful blessing of a life He intends for you, it's all in the Scripture. God is a person, and not any person on earth can reduce to writing all that they know and all that they think. But Paul says something astonishing about the Scriptures. They are profitable for teaching. In other words, they're the whole package. God knows much more, but everything He wants you to know, He put in writing. And then He ties three more words very closely together. He says, reproof. They're profitable for reproof. And that's kind of an odd word, isn't it? 
Okay? Are you reproving something? What exactly does that mean? Maybe somebody else has a different Bible translation to help us. What else do you have besides the word reproof? Pardon? Rebuke. Rebuke. That's a little clearer. Anybody ever been rebuked? Not a good feeling, is it? That Greek word means to expose what is wrong. When you are rebuked or reproved, the measure in which you've strayed away from what's good and right is pointed out to you. Anyone who's dealt with preschoolers has probably done a lot of reproving or rebuking. I mean, the things you say as a parent, don't hit your brother with a stick, okay? I mean, don't hit your brother, period, but get oddly specific as a parent. Don't hit your brother with a stick. Put the stick down, put the stick down, put the stick down, okay? That is reproving. That is rebuking. That is pointing out what is wrong. Then Paul says, it's also profitable for correction. Reproving or rebuking is exposing what's wrong. Correction, it's pretty obvious, means putting it back into place where it should be. And the next word is training in righteousness. Now that what is wrong has been exposed and it has been corrected and put back into place, now I'm capable of gaining real strength and be trained in righteousness. I get strong and capable so that the man of God, he says, may be competent and equipped for every kind of good work. This passage made sense to me when I first started studying those words, it took me back to something that happened to me when I was in ninth grade. When I was in ninth grade, I grew up in Mexico, so I went to Mexican schools my entire life, except for one single year, my ninth grade year, I went to a missionary school. So we had this little American bubble uh, in Chihuahua, Mexico. And we did American things like have, we never did this in Mexican schools, we had faculty versus student body games and sports which turned out to be a terrible idea because they made us play softball one day, and I, I hated softball before I really hate it now, and I'm sure you'll understand why in just a second. I had a big old lummox of a choir teacher who was, as I'm going to show you, I'm not being mean, I'm just being objective and reporting the facts. He was a clumsy man, okay? He meant well, but he had just kind of a big lummox, I think is the word I want here of a man who went up to bat. They put me at first base for some mysterious reason. Bad place to be if you hate softball. But the choir teacher hit a slow roller over toward third, and there wasn't a good athlete on that entire field. So I knew that the third baseman is going to struggle to find the ball, much less throw it all the way back over to me, and I knew just enough to do what I've seen the big leaguers do. I kept my left foot barely touching the bag, and I stretched toward third base to shorten the throw as best I could. So far, so good, right? That's what you're supposed to do, or so I've been told, so I've seen, right? Well, the lummox of a choir teacher came thundering down the first base line, and I don't really know what happened to the throw because he stepped on the back of my left ankle instead of the bag. See why I called him a lummox? That's what a lummox would do. What that did was shatter my ankle, pin it to the ground, and as I twisted, and pretty sure I screamed, everything rotated over so that this little knot that you have on the inside of your ankle, which name, whose name I've forgotten, it rolled over and joined the knot on the other side. Yeah, right. It was great. They then decided to finish the game and let me sit in the high desert sun for the next two hours while they finished the game. Well, I'm watching my ankle become the size of my head, and folks, look at the size of my head, okay? 
It's swollen. I've now got two knots on the left, on the outside of the leg. The inside is strangely flat. So I'm saying to the adults who presumably care, I think my leg's broken. You're fine. It's just a sprain. It really, really hurts. Sprains can be very painful. Okay. So there I sat. Then they took me to the Red Cross, which was staffed that day by a sadist. Because, (laughs) I'm serious, the guy came out and gave three good squeezes on my leg, asking each time, does it hurt? In Spanish, le duele? So I, I responded in clear terms that nurses will be familiar with. Can you imagine how I responded? I screamed, right? Uh, No real intelligible words, just a scream of anguish. And then he said, I think it's broken, but our x-ray machine is too. You need to go to the hospital. Thank you. Finally, they got me to an orthopedist named Dr. Laranua. And Dr. Laranua did exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 describes. It's a perfect picture of what God has in mind and why he says the Bible is profitable to you. What that orthopedist did for me is this. First of all, he knew everything that he had to do. I was distressed. He was not. He had dealt with probably at that point in his career, he was an older man, he had probably dealt with thousands of fractures. I was distressed and anguished and wondering if I was ever going to walk again. He was as calm as anybody could be. They then put me under general anesthesia because it was a really bad break. And I didn't see it, but I know what he did next. He opened my leg up and he exposed what was wrong. Then, and it must have been a gruesome thing, he put everything back where it should be. And I was casted for six weeks. And when the cast came off, I had another fun discovery of something called atrophy. And he sent me to physical therapy to learn how to put my left foot flat on the ground again and rebuild all the strength and all the muscles that that leg had lost. From that day to this, because Dr. Laranua knew what to do and he knew how to reprove and correct and then train up my leg, I've never given it another thought until I tell this story. He saved my health. I had, as a 14-year-old kid, I had a lot of plans of what I still wanted to do. I wanted to play football. I wanted to run. I wanted to do all kinds of things. None of those things would have been possible without the intervention of someone who knew exactly what to do, could expose what was wrong, correct it, and then help me get trained up to get back to the strength that a normal, healthy child would have. That's what the Bible offers you. When you, day after day, with all the highs and lows of a real personal relationship, go through this, this is the outcome. The man of God, another translation says the servant of God. Understand, Paul's talking to Timothy personally, but this was put in the Scriptures for all disciples of all time, so that the men and the women of God may be complete, whole, capable, strong, able, and equipped for every good work. So the Father who knows all of life and knows exactly what's wrong in you and with you and around you, He has invited you to come day after day in a personal relationship with Him and meet Him face to face. And as you continue to do that and God breathes Scripture to you, And astonishingly, the same Holy Spirit that inspired it, Jesus tells us, turns light on that Scripture so that it becomes understandable and applicable to you. 
and has placed you in a family of faith where older brothers and sisters can never tell you and be a substitute for the voice of God, but can help you understand, as I'm trying to do, what God wrote down, you become complete and equipped for every kind of good work. So the spouse, the parent, the child, the friend, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, all those different roles that are represented in your life and in all the seasons of life of our church, in every season, at every point, God is at work in Scripture to make you complete and equipped to serve Him and love Him well in all of life. All of that is offered to you in Scripture. And some of you will be very perfectionistic about Scripture as I once was. You know, make these big, bold plans that I'm going to, okay, I get it, that helped me, I'm encouraged, I'm going to go home and read the entire Bible. No, you won't. And it's okay. It's a personal relationship. Every new day of life is an invitation from the God who made life itself and wrote down His thoughts and truth about it in a book for you to come and be face-to-face with Him to meet with Him through the inspiration and the help of the Holy Spirit so that you can be face-to-face to Him and He can reprove you. He can rebuke you. If I'm very honest, many times my Bible has stayed closed because I don't want that confrontation. God Himself and my own conscience is telling me that I'm not right and I don't want to hear it. So I stop hearing from Him. That's Bible reading. I stop talking to Him. That's prayer. But when finally, perhaps pushed to the extreme by my circumstances or my own discontent, I open the Scripture and I have that face-to-face encounter, it's astonishing. And it's not great every day. Do you have any personal relationship in your life that is great and perfect every single day? They don't exist. This whole world has been ruined by sin. But if you continually, day after day, meet with God, He will reprove and correct and train you in righteousness, and you will be capable because He made you to live that way. He designed that relationship for you, and the life that that the Father has given you will become a reality as you meet with Him day after day. So don't be perfectionistic. If you're new to the Bible and you don't even know where to start, write these two passages down. Read Psalm 1 and John 1 tomorrow. Psalm 1 is the first of 150 psalms of worship and praise from Israel. It describes in a single word picture the life of a man, the life of a woman who stays rooted in the Word of God. God says that in times of suffering and drought, your life basically becomes drought-proof. You remain fruitful. You remain a blessing. You remain capable when everything else around you is filled with adversity. John 1 will tell you about Jesus and how God looked across human history and gave His Son to the world so that the very Scriptures that we're reading tell you all about Him because He alone is capable of saving you. You see, friends, what I'm trying to tell you is it's personal. It's not religious drudgery. Jesus once confronted the Pharisees in John chapter 5, and He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But you don't understand that they testify about Me, and you are not willing to come to Me. They had focused on the Word and missed the person. I'm telling you, read the Word to experience the person 
to open up your life as hard as it may be, as imperfect as it may be, as hot and cold and difficult and sometimes exhilarating and sometimes drudgery, just like every other relationship in your life, to open yourself up to a daily face-to-face encounter with the one who spoke the universe into existence but had greater plans for you because he designed for you to live in fellowship with him face-to-face. And you'll discover that you really are complete and equipped for every good work that God has for you. To be ready for the good work that God wants you to do, you have to spend time face-to-face with Him. Can we pray together? Lord, I pray very earnestly that no one here would feel any shame or guilt regarding their understanding of the Bible or their habits of Bible reading. You are not the author of shame and guilt. Help them understand, Lord, what you are inviting them to, which I have only tried to convey, that you want fellowship with them. You want to be face-to-face with them. You want to spend time together with me tomorrow. What What an amazing privilege. Help us to see the value of that and help us to understand and believe that that time spent face-to-face, whether it's only a few minutes or longer seasons with you, will be profitable and will change us into the men and women you want us to be. If there's somebody here, Lord, who has studied the Scriptures or been in the Scriptures but does not know your Son, Jesus, I pray that even now the Scriptures which speak of Him would come alive in their heart and mind to draw them to faith in Christ. Help us to trust Jesus, whether it's for the first time or to trust Him anew in difficult circumstances in which we've not walked before. Help us to trust Jesus, the one the Scripture tells us. I pray this in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen.